Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. And today, I want to pick up where we left off last time, where we addressed another proposed Fermi Paradox resolution, which was known as the Firstborn Hypothesis. Now, this hypothesis states that, essentially, humanity may be the first sentient civilization to emerge in our galaxy, or the first technologically dependent sentient species, and that this may be the reason why humanity has not found any evidence of other civilizations in our galaxy yet. Now, the theory takes its name from the Space Odyssey series by Arthur C. Clarke. This series was adapted into film multiple times. The first novel, 2001 A Space Odyssey, was co-written with the screenplay that Arthur C. Clarke wrote with Stanley Kubrick for the film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. The second book in the series was also adapted, and it was called 2010, The Year We Make Contact. In any case, the series, the story, the plot revolve around the idea that humanity has been visited by an ancient civilization in the past, one so advanced that humans couldn't tell if they were encountering a robotic phenomenon, some kind of automated probes, a machine intelligence, an organic intelligence, or something in between, neural uploads inside of a big black monolith. And this became a major iconic feature of the film, the idea that the aliens themselves, they are represented by these giant black monoliths, and they are perfectly symmetrical and impenetrable, and nothing we ever do seems to be able to penetrate their outer shell. And as is revealed early in the film, and of course the novelization, they are the emissaries and sentinels of this super-advanced intelligent species known as the Firstborn, the first sentient species to emerge in our galaxy, and they actively tampered with human evolution. Because when a monolith arrived on Earth at the beginning of the film, it is several million years before modern humans have emerged, and early hominids are fighting for survival in some rather tough conditions, and as soon as the monolith arrives, however, they begin to intuitively grasp new concepts, such as hunting, and the use of bones as tools and weapons, and in the book, Arthur C. Clarke included other neat little lessons and tidbits that uh, they began to do, like tying grass into knots and patterns to essentially weave, how to sling stones at a target, and this allows for them to begin to thrive. They begin eating meat. The competition between themselves and other herbivorous animals no longer becomes an issue. They're able to defend themselves against predators, and they're able to gain an advantage over other groups of hominids. Whereas before, all they could really do was 
scream, yell, and put on displays of violence and flail at each other whenever they encountered the limited resources in their environment and, and there was competition over it. The 2001 was arguably the best known and most influential case of this idea of the ancient astronaut theory, but it was hardly the first. In fact, Stanley Kubrick was inspired to write the script to 2001 based on the short story work of Arthur C. Clarke, specifically the short stories Encounter at Dawn and The Sentinel, which were adapted into part one and part two of the movie, respectively. Encounter at Dawn takes place in the ancient period. Human beings are on the cusp of committing their first civilized act, you might say, and what happens is a group of them, they encounter a alien spacecraft, and its, its crew, its engineers are attempting to repair it because they really did not intend to land on the planet. They were merely observing. And, of course, they manage to fix their spacecraft and leave, but the encounter has a profound effect on these early humans who naturally view these aliens and their spacecraft there as divine entities or gods. And it's then hinted at the end that basically this is all taking place in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia, and that these individuals who've witnessed the gods are the early ancestors of the Sumerians and Babylonians. So the basic premise of the story is that an encounter with an extraterrestrial intelligence gave rise to civilization as we know it. Now, for the movie, of course, they decided to change that to early hominids, so basically, highly evolved apes are the ones to encounter the monolith, and their survival is ensured by learning how to hunt and become omnivorous. The second short story, The Sentinel, this became the basis for Part 2 of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and like the film, it takes place on the moon, and it concerns the discovery of an ancient relic, which appeared to have been purposefully buried, and when they unearth it, it begins communicating and sending a message off into space. And they realize that the Sentinel, as they called it, it's aptly named because it was put there by an ancient species that had visited Earth in the past. This device was deliberately buried on the moon because the advanced species knew that by the time humanity had become sophisticated enough to leave planet Earth and begin exploring its own solar system that it would have the, the means and the know-how and the technology to find the Sentinel and unearth it. And the moment they do, that's when it starts broadcasting. It's saying, yes, our old experiment has reached a new phase of development. So all of this was rolled into 2001 A Space Odyssey. And again, it was hardly the first or only example of this kind of thinking. And it went on to have a great influence in science fiction for instance, a good recent example is Prometheus, Ridley Scott's prequel to the Alien franchise. And inspired in part by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, no doubt, Ridley Scott decided that he wanted to go back to the first film that he directed, which had been written by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, and really contained some really wonderful ideas and a lot of mysterious threads that never really got investigated through the subsequent franchise. And so he decided that, yes, those creatures we saw in the first film, the aliens that had that massive derelict ship in the 
the fossilized or mummified remains that uh, the crew of the Nostromo found aboard it, that they were, in fact, the creators of the xenomorphs, that the xenomorph was indeed a biological weapon, and I do believe this spoke to a lot of fan theories about where they came from and how these two species could possibly be related. So Ridley decided to do the ancient astronauts thing and say that this species, they were known as the engineers, and they were not only responsible for creating the xenomorphs, but also the human race, many, many, many eons or possibly billions of years prior. Other modern examples include Star Trek The Next Generation. In a sixth season episode called The Chase, the main characters, they realize that a friend of theirs who was recently killed, he had been investigating a very, very groundbreaking theory. He was collecting DNA samples from all over the quadrant and sort of following them as clues. And ultimately what he had found was a planet where allegedly a progenitor race used to live. They had been around billions of years before humanity or any of the other sentient species in our galaxy, and that they were responsible for seeding the entire quadrant with samples of their DNA. And this was what gave rise to humans, Vulcans, Cardassians, Romulans, Klingons, all of whom are sort of represented there at the finish line. They were all investigating this. And this was in many ways a fun way of demonstrating why most of the species on the show are all humanoids. Well, they all came from the same place. But it was also a nod to the ancient astronauts theory. Stargate is another example. This franchise began with the storyline where humans discover that the pyramids, ancient Egypt, these were in fact built under the direction of aliens known as the Gua'uld, who essentially were the gods of the Egyptians. That's how they were represented in the hieroglyphs and so forth. And how humanity in the modern day is retracing this and finding that, yes, the Gua'uld are in fact hostile and they need to be dealt with and so forth. It started out as a single movie directed by Michael Bay, just a lot of action porn, really, and went on to become adapted into a number of series. So a pretty successful adaptation of the Ancient Astronauts idea yet again. So, as you can see, this idea is very well represented in science fiction and has been for quite some time. But, predictably, it was also paralleled by a great deal of scientific thought. Arthur C. Clarke explored the idea in science fiction because, as a very dedicated and serious scientist and science communicator, he loved to explore these ideas and wanted to bring them to a wider audience. And Clark was not alone in this respect. In fact, many scientists over the past few decades have explored the idea of paleocontact and indicated that this is a possibility that scientists should take seriously. Carl Sagan himself, in the famous book he co-wrote with Josef Schlossky, Intelligent Life in the Universe, that this prospect is one that scientists should entertain. This book remains one of the most influential on the subject of extraterrestrial intelligence and the possibilities of first contact, and what that might look like. In fact, they even indicated that evidence of past contact would likely be preserved in the form of folklore and mythological traditions and legends, and they even provided some examples. 
which included the account of contact made between the Tlingit people of the Pacific Northwest and the La Perouse French Expedition of 1786. Now, this event was recorded about a century later by G.T. Emmons, an anthropologist, and in the course of learning about this legend, he realized that, yes, this was an actual account that was describing a very real event, but because of time and the nature of the people's storytelling and mythological traditions, the encounter was rendered, it was spoken of in a way that sounded legendary and mythical. And this included the fact that in the story, the Tlingit elders related how these immense black birds with white wings arrived on the shores and was carrying pale-faced humans and how trade began between them. And then once their business was complete, the giant birds flew away. Now, what they're describing there is, in fact, massive trading ships with sails. But, again, because of the effect of time and the gift of legendary storytelling, it sounded like it might be a mythological fable trying to convey a certain lesson or moral. But, in fact, when reconstructed, it indicated that, yeah, the timing and the description does seem to indicate that the Peru's expedition stopped on the West Coast in this particular place along the way, and the people remembered it in the form of their oral history. So Sagan Schlosky said that the same could be true of extraterrestrial visitors and paleo contact happening in the past, where they wrote, The encounter between La Perouse and the Tlingit suggests that under certain circumstances, a brief contact with an alien civilization will be recorded in a reconstructable manner. The reconstruction will be aided if, one, the account is committed to written records soon after the event, two, a major change is affected in the contacted society by the encounter, and three, no attempt is made by the contacting civilization to disguise its exogenous nature. So if, in fact, extraterrestrials visited Earth in the past, there could be an account that would very much have been written in the language of the time, and I don't just mean linguistics, but also in terms of the thoughts and worldviews that were prevalent at the time. So it might indeed sound like a spiritual account, but was in fact retelling a real event. In terms of major change, did the society in question experience a leap in development, or were they suddenly just gone because of a mysterious disease? First contact between Europeans and indigenous people often led to smallpox infecting said people. So, and... As for number three, no attempt was made to disguise this. If, in fact, the writings indicated that the beings present were actively demonstrating their superior abilities or knowledge or technology, it could be interpreted as a visit from a more advanced species. Of course, though, Sagan and Shlosky were not advocating any kind of pseudo-history. They emphasized the need for skepticism and that these ideas that they were offering. While the possibility needed to be taken seriously, they were speculative and unproven, and this was due in large part because the idea of ancient astronauts was becoming the source of a very popular trope by the late 1970s, and that hasn't changed till this day. Basically, the idea that aliens were responsible for building the pyramids, building all ancient structures that we see today, 
that they added their DNA to ours, that all ancient accounts having to do with the gods were in fact referring to aliens. In fact, Carl Sagan would go on to say that he regretted whatever role he played in the popularizing of these theories. However, his level of culpability is very, very questionable because, in fact, stories of alien abductions, UFO sightings, and conspiracy theories, and the idea that all of our mythological traditions were influenced by aliens. Ideas like that went back several decades, some of the earliest examples being in the early 1950s and 60s. But it was Eric von Daniken and his book, released in 1968, The Chariot of the Gods, that popularized the ancient astronauts' theory more than anything. And Daniken, he was a well-known author and a fraudster who'd been convicted of committing many acts of fraud throughout his life. But in this book and several subsequent ones, he argued some ancient astronauts' theories that were taken very seriously by many and are still a source of inspiration to many pseudo-historians and pseudo-archaeologists today. And among the many arguments he made was that extraterrestrials were responsible for some of the greatest technological innovations in the ancient world, and that the evidence of this can be found in ancient structures and artifacts. And that includes the ancient pyramids of Giza, Stonehenge, Pumapunku, a structure built in Bolivia by ancient peoples, and the Mao of Rapa Nui, or the large stone heads that sit on Easter Island, as well as the Nazca Lines of Peru and the Baghdad Battery, basically any major structures built by ancient peoples, he argued that the methods and the technology would not have been available to indigenous cultures at the time, ergo aliens built them. And he also argued that evidence of contact was preserved in ancient artwork and iconography, and this included things like the Japanese dogu figurines, which he said looked like astronauts, the hieroglyphs in the Egyptian temple of Seti, which, which he claimed looked like helicopters, and also ancient artifacts by the Inca and Quimbaya, who, again, Danikin and others like him would claim looked like astronauts or looked like spacecraft. And a very, very popular argument that emerged out of his theories was that if you look at a lot of ancient monuments, especially temples such as those made by the Babylonians that had star maps on their tops, or the Nazca Lines, and other examples of geoglyphs, like the ones found in England, where ancient people carved horse figures into the side of hills. The argument is, is that these features were all created to be appreciated from above, and that only a civilization that had aerial technology, aka spacecraft or planes, only they could fully appreciate those things, only they could plot them out. And last, Danikin claimed that many ancient religions were inspired by paleocontact, and he used examples from Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Hindu mythology to illustrate this. And in particular, he used the example of chariots in the sky, wherever ancient people referred in their text to chariots in the sky and other divine revelations. He claimed this was actually an example of humans communicating with aliens. And this went on to inspire several other pseudo-historians and pseudo-archaeologists like Zechariah Sitchin and his 
Twelfth Planet or Robert K.G. Temple's The Serious Mystery. And this gave rise to legends like Nibiru and the claim that the ancient Babylonian gods were actually references to different planets in the solar system and how humanity came from these planets and landed here on Earth many, many generations ago and how we retain evidence of our alien ancestry through our DNA. Now, the problem with all of these theories, all of these arguments, is the complete lack of evidence for them. They all come down to a combination of coincidence, of pareidolia, where people see patterns where none really exist, or just the patterns only appear to them in their minds because of the cognitive bias that they've got going on. They look at a sculpture of a bird and they see a spacecraft. That, too, is an example of observational bias. But above all, the worst of it is Von Daniken's claim about ancient cultures not having the requisite technology to build ancient structures, when in fact, archaeologists have managed to demonstrate how not only the pyramids of Giza, but how other structures such as the Mayan stepped pyramids or the Aztec pyramids, the Olmec pyramids, the great structures of the Inca, and other such ancient structures that there really is no mystery as to how they were built, because, based on the archaeological record, particularly with the pyramids, we not only know what methods were used by the Egyptians, how a lot of labor was used in place of any kind of advanced machinery, how they used systems of ramps, pulleys, even the handheld tools that they used. There's preserved examples of all of this. We've seen where they got the quarry from. That, too, has been preserved and also how they built up to these large pyramids, how, in fact, they did a lot of uh, trial and error over several millennia to get to the point where the pyramids of Giza were possible. And we also have seen how the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Incas, how they were able to fashion stone blocks using just basic know-how and ingenuity without the need for heavy metal instruments or even heavy beasts of burden like oxen or horses, they were still nevertheless able to mobilize great amounts of rock and quarry, assemble them together, and in such a way that they would adapt and move in, in the case of earthquakes. So to say that our ancient ancestors lacked the knowledge or the ability is really based in just pure ignorance. And it reflects the fact that pseudo-historians and pseudo-archaeologists they seem to think that what they don't know, what they haven't been educated in, because they have no formal education in these matters, that because they don't know about it, it's impossible. And there's also the fact that these theories, the ancient aliens version of all this, that it has the stink of 19th century reasoning, ethnocentrism, and just blatant imperial racism. It has that stink on it. And to give you an example... Between the 16th and 19th centuries, as European explorers were going out and conquering and pillaging half the known world, their explorers found many instances of megalithic structures that had either been abandoned or were currently inhabited, and without critical thought or investigation, they concluded that these must have been built by cultures located within the Mediterranean. And a perfect example of that is Angkor Wat. And these structures were found by French naturalist Henri Mahout, 
1860. And when he saw this beautifully, beautifully preserved series of temples and structures, he misattributed their origins completely. He believed that either Alexander the Great or the ancient Romans must have built them because he did not think the local people to be capable of them. He was completely ignorant of the fact that these were the ancient ruins of the Khmer Empire, which controlled much of the region between the 9th and 15th century. And then you have the stepped pyramids of North America, including Cahokia, Illinois, where you have a large ancient complex of stepped pyramids and what was clearly an ancient city that was built by the people along the Mississippi. And the city was believed to have been built in the 11th century and was continuously inhabited for about 400 years before it began to decline and had an estimated population of 50,000 at its peak, and all of whom were organized around the cultivation of maize, hunting and gathering, pottery-making, shell jewelry, flint clay figurines. Evidence of this emerging civilization there has been well-preserved. And yet, when missionaries came and began to settle in the area, they denied that the locals were responsible, they attributed to travelers from Egypt, and similar things have been said about the stepped pyramids in Mesoamerica, such as Chichen Itza and Teotihuacan. So quite frankly, the ancient aliens theory, it is really quite similar to these same ideas, these very ethnocentric ideas that local people couldn't have possibly have done this. They weren't smart enough or skilled enough. So it had to have been somebody else. The only difference being that these aliens, who have become a substitute for European or Mediterranean civilizations. And as noted before, Sagan would write how he regretted any role he played in this. And in fact, it was both he and Shlosky who released a book in 1979 called Broca's Brain, where they not only criticized ancient aliens' craze, but they specifically referred to von Daniken and other people whom they referred to as uncritical writers, who committed the cardinal mistake of offering up what were untestable, unproven theories, not as food for thought, but as something they claimed to be real, or how they might argue that, well, you can't disprove this theory, and the only way to disprove it would be to find aliens and ask them, this is an actual argument made by an ancient alien's proponent, how this was absolutely ridiculous. It's the perfect example of the Russell's teapot analogy. The burden of proof lies with people making claims. And as Sagan himself would say many times, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And when it comes to the ancient aliens or ancient astronauts theory, the more scientific and serious approach, there is no evidence. Which is not to say that there couldn't be some day. And it is interesting food for thought, and it is science fiction gold, absolutely. And it is something that we should think about and that scientists should take seriously as a possibility. But that does not mean approaching it with uncritical thought or anything less than a highly empirical, skeptical attitude. An interesting topic, to be sure, and controversial for obvious reasons, but nevertheless interesting. So, thank you for listening. Tune in next time where we will explore other proposed resolutions to the Fermi Paradox and more installments on humanity's eventual migration from Earth and how we may someday come to live 
among the icy satellites that orbit Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and beyond. Thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.